Today's scripture reading is from 1 John 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This, this is, is the, the reading, reading of God's, God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Chacones, for reading that for us. It's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for your flexibility this morning with the, uh, the ice and the change up of service times. And uh, speaking of flexibility and adjusting, uh, I'm pretty sure everybody in the room, at least at some level, has had to adjust to virtual meetings, right? How many of you, uh, kids especially, how many of you have had to do virtual schooling? Raise your hand. Yeah, me too, by the way. Um, can I just say something to you kids for a minute? This, and teens and everybody. We are really proud of you. We really are. You guys are doing a great job. You guys are going through some really hard stuff, and we're really proud of you. We love you. Don't give up. Don't get too discouraged. Uh, we are praying for you. And teachers, <laughs> whether you're by profession or by parental necessity, uh, we see you, and we love you, and we're proud of you, and thank you for all that you're doing as well. Like many of you, I've had to do a lot of different uh, meetings at home, and uh, I have found a space, a little corner of my house that works for my uh, meeting. It's kind of my meeting space, and I bet many of us have, have done that. Whether you, you might even have a home office. If you don't, maybe you don't have quite the space for it, and so you just find a little corner that becomes yours, and that's what I have to do. And that is in the corner of our bedroom. There's a little desk uh, that Jolie uses that if I have a virtual meeting that I need to, I can set up there as well. And uh, at that desk, she has this little stool, little thing, little lightweight, white, really cute, probably Home Goods or Target or some cutesy place like that. Um, and it's really lightweight, which is great. Jolie loves the stool. I learned very early on in COVID, though, that that stool was not designed for six foot two, 225, because couple days into using it, Jolie walks in while I'm on a meeting, tries to sneak in. You know, you have to be really quiet if somebody's doing something. And she goes, oh, John, get up. Get up. Don't sit on that stool anymore. Apparently, one of the legs decided to do this. <laughs> Thankfully, I, I didn't actually break it all the way. We were able to kind of <laughs> just bend it back out and make it work. But what was happening was I was asking that stool to bear up under something, under pressure, under, I was putting weight on it that it was not designed to carry. And when I'm doing that, I'm actually destroying in the process a very, very good gift. So naturally, instead of trying to exercise and lose the weight, I just go get a bigger chair, right? <laughs> but more importantly, I think that idea is the same principle that we're going to find in this passage in 1 John. 
that we just heard read, that Jose and Christy just read for us. It really wants to make us ask the question, what are you putting all of your weight on, so to speak? So if you have a copy of your scripture, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, I invite you to turn with me there, please. As you turn, you'll see pretty quickly that if you look from verses 12, 13, 14, then look at verses 15, 16, 17, just the way that John constructs this passage, it's clear that there's two distinct sections going on here. The first half, verses 12 to 14, are filled with identity statements. This is, Christian, who you are. If you want one word, you can even borrow what Pastor Jin used last week. This is about being. Then if you just glance at the second half, verses 15 to 17, it all centers on one action statement, which is how we are to live, something we are to do as a result of who we are. First half is being, second half is doing. And the order of these really matters. The being comes before the doing, because actually the world around us tells us the exact opposite. It tells us that what you do is who you be. Pardon my poor grammar, but just works with the phrasing. What you do is who you be. In other words, if you make a mistake, you are a mistake. If you do things, if you do good things, you are good. Your performance your, your performance drives your identity, your value, your worth. All of those things come out of your actions and what you do. And yet God works the exact opposite way. That by his grace, he calls you something. This is who you are. And it's after he has made you something different that he calls you to live in light of what he has just made you. This is the total opposite message of Christianity of what we're used to. That he pronounces something to be true of you, and only after that is true calls you to live in light. Our doing does not make us something. We do out of who we are and what God has already made us to be. He calls you uh, beloved. He calls you forgiven, holy, redeemed, and then calls us to live that out. While at the same time, not just leaving you on your own to figure it out, but commits his entire divine power to make you into what he has just called you to be. That is the message of Christianity that gives us hope. Whenever we see a command from God, it's driven out of what he has already made us to be. And this relationship between being and doing is really important. So let's take a look at the first half there, verses 12 to 14 together. I just want to read those verses again, and I want you to listen for some of these identity pieces. Verse 12, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Children. John starts off by calling Christians children. If you were here with us a couple weeks ago, you know that John writes this, this letter, this epistle, as an old man. But what's interesting is John is not just calling them his children, even though he may be a father to many of them in the faith, but he's calling us children at large, children of God. He's going to say in, verse, in chapter 3 that that is what we are. We are children of God. 
He actually uses this term 14 times in this few, you know, just a short book, more than any other letter. This is his favorite term to refer to Christians as. And like I said in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, that what see what great love the Father has lavished on us. The love that Father has poured out on Christians, on his children, or on his people, is what makes them children. There's an identity that we now have that is not distant. We are family. We belong. And whether you identify more in the Father's category, a little older, a little more mature in the faith, or whether you identify more as the young men or woman category, younger, maybe a little more immature in the faith, either one, what is said in this passage is true of all who are in Christ, who are trusting in Jesus. What do we find? Three primary things. One, your sins are forgiven. Two, you know God. And it's very, every time we come to the word no, I'm going to say it over and over again. This is not simply an intellectual no. This is relational no. There is a deep abiding oneness that we have with the one who was before all time, with God himself. And we have overcome the evil one. I just want to highlight again the base message of Christianity, which is that you didn't do a single thing to make this true. That salvation from start to finish is a work of God in your life. That while we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. That we didn't perform well enough. We didn't do anything, going back to that doing and being. We didn't do anything in order to be forgiven. We received it as a gift. It's because of what Jesus has done. We've been forgiven on account of his name. How is it that we've overcome the evil one? It's not because you're just strong enough in and of yourself, but it's because Jesus overcame the evil one and he offers that to you as a grace as we are united with him in faith. And John is reminding Christians of who we are. That's the foundation. He starts there before he moves in this passage into calling us to do something and, and, and to live in a way that reflects our status and our identity as children of God. So as that, with that being said, let's look at verse 15 to 17 at what he calls us to do, how he calls us to live as children of God. Verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The whole, this, the, these three verses, the whole premise is built on the first command that we see right out of the gate in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. And everything else in these three verses is designed to either help us understand what that means or give us some reasons as to why. Really present a, an argument as to why we're not to love the world. But let's start there. Let's, let's try and figure out what, what does he mean by don't love the world. If as children of God, forgiven in, in relationship with the Father, uh, overcome the evil one, what are we to not love? He says the world. And we have to kind of think about this for a minute because the world that word is translated, the, the cosmos, is, is translated or is used in at least three different ways. The first way that it's used throughout Scripture is to refer to the created order. 
the, the universe, the physical material earth, okay? Not what John is talking about here. I think we can talk about, we can prove that pretty easy. The second way that the Bible uses the word world is to, is to describe the people in the world. You know, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. Well, if God loves the people of the world, he clearly wouldn't be telling us to not love the people in the world. So, okay, not that either. Which means that what John is doing is he's using this third way. He's using it to describe a way of approaching life that is void of God, anti-God, with a buying into the value system that is under the control of the evil one that goes in the exact opposite of the God's kingdom and his values. It, it's a way that, uh, that is fixated on temporary pleasures, the here and now. This is what John is telling us to not love. But if we really want to understand what he means when he says, do not love the world or the things of the world, we have to jump down to verse 16. Because in verse 16, we find a little three-phrase definition of what, it me- what the world means. Because he says in verse 16, everything in the world, pause, and then he gives us three strange phrases that quite honestly, on surface level, don't help me at all. Because <laughs> you read the phrases, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if that makes a whole lot of sense to you, you can step up here and finish the sermon, please. On, at face value, I don't really know what John means. So we have to do a little digging into this. Let's take them one at a time. The lust of the flesh. Both the first two, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, start off with the word lust, which is right. It's a fine translation, but the problem with that is we carry baggage with that word. And as soon as we hear that word, we're automatically thinking sexual temptation, sexual sin. But that's not exactly what John is using it as. You see, the word that is translated here, lust, is also in this same passage translated desire in verse 17. In plenty other places in Scripture, it's translated desire. In fact, it's a strong desire. It's not inherently an evil desire, though. Jesus uses the same exact word to describe his own feelings. He says, I have a strong desire, Luke 22, to eat this Passover meal with you, my disciples. It's the same strong feeling. The question really is, it's almost a neutral term. The question is, what, does that, what, what, is, the atten- what is the object of that strong affection, strong desire? Or how do we satisfy that desire? So what he's talking about is a desire of the flesh. Okay, flesh. Got to start talking about that. What does he mean there? If you have grown up in the church, you are probably importing a certain understanding of what it means to talk about the flesh from the Apostle Paul. Because in many of his letters, Galatians especially and others and Romans, you find Paul uses the word flesh to refer to the unsanctified part of us, our sinful nature, which is bent away from God and his law. And we take that and we import that in. The problem is that's actually not how John uses the word. When John uses it, every single time John uses the word flesh, he uses it not the way that Paul does, but to simply mean fleshy, earthy, human, as opposed to divine. So really what he's saying here, he's not implying sinfulness really in this first sentence, in this first definition, but he's talking about desires that we have that are natural to being human. Just very innate desires that we have in this world. Human appetites, 
food. You get hungry. You have that desire. There are sexual urges that we have. There are desires and needs to be known and have friends. And, you know, you can, you can think about all of these needs that we have that just come from being human. That's what John's talking about. Go to the second point, lust of the eyes. Again, he's talking desires here. Desires don't just come from inside of us, but they're triggered by things that we see through our eyes. Beauty, pleasure, entertainment, enjoyment, all sorts of things that you didn't think about, you you didn't realize you needed inside. You didn't have a desire until you saw something and went, I want that. That's incredible. That's beautiful. That's amazing. I want that. Maybe it's respect from others or popularity. We can just go on and on with that. The desires that are natural to the human from inside, the desires that come in through the outside, through the eyes. Third, the pride of life. When he talks about life here, he's talking about the normal resources and material possessions that are needed to function. Money, possessions, food, all of these things we need to have clothes, car, house, in order to live. Basic necessities of life. I almost started singing the Jungle Book. <laughs> so listen to the way that the New Living Translation puts this passage. Just a different way of understanding this. It says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. That might be a very different way of thinking about this passage, because again, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably used this passage a little bit differently than I think what John is trying to use it for. He's not describing things that are innately bad. Food, money, possessions, beauty, those are all good things that God has given us. This is where it's important to go back to verse 15 and realize what is it that we are called to do. What is driving this entire section is the call to do not love those things. He doesn't say hate them. He doesn't say run from them in the ways that he does in other, portion, other portions of the New Testament when it comes to overt sin. Bad things right away. We're told plenty of times, flee those desires, run away from those. These are normal things that we need. It's almost like if you want a parallel passage, you could go read later on Matthew 6, where Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, hey, isn't life more than just your food and clothes? Then he says, look at the sparrows. Look at the grass in the fields. Look how God takes care of them. Don't seek those first, but seek first what? the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will take care of all these other things. Interestingly enough, this problem is the very original problem for humanity. If you were to go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, here's what you'd find, and see if you can listen for those three categories. That when Adam and Eve, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, remember this, where we're at here, God has created this entire beautiful world, made all these plants and all these trees. He said, eat from all of them. They're my gift to you. I'll provide for you. Don't eat from this one. Why? Because I get to decide what's right and wrong in this world. And I'm calling you to trust me, depend on me, allow me to define your reality. Let me prioritize for you. 
And the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, desires of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye, desires of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, gaining, accumulating. You can hear pride of life in there. And so she took it and ate it and gave some to her husband. And ever since that moment, all of humanity has been bent away from God. And we have tried to take these three normal categories, desires we have innately, desires we see from the outside for something, and just the natural resources. And what we do is we try to satisfy those desires or use those possessions in a way that is void of God. We try to satisfy those desires that we have not through the creator, but through the creation. We start to ask them to do things that they cannot do, to give us worth, to give us meaning, to give us value. When we ask those things to give us those things, we're like that little stool under my weight. It can't bear up under that expectation. We'll crush it. And we'll take very good gifts and we will destroy them. That's what loving the world means. It means approaching the desires and the things of this earth as if they were ultimate, as if they were the most important things. Meanwhile, rejecting what God has to say or ignoring it and prioritizing the temporary here and now, temporary invisible over the eternal and invisible. Emphasizing right now self-gratification, give me more Self-promotion. What might this look like for us? I don't think we have to spend too much time because I think even already, my prayer is that the Spirit is, is, is convicting us, is speaking to us individually where we are. What might this look like, though? Maybe saying yes to every impulse that you have. No self-control. Can't say no. It's kind of the mantra of our culture, right? If it feels good, do it. If it looks good, Go, go grab it. Go do what you want. You get to be the Lord of your own world with no consideration to what God has revealed in the Spirit. Some of that's really overt. Some of that's really obvious. Some of it's really subtle like gluttony. Where I didn't really need to have a snack, but it felt good. Maybe it's sexual immorality, sexual addictions, we could just go on and on with these desires that we have, which, by the way, if I can take a little aside here, I do want to invite you to join us as a church in participating in what the church has done for a couple thousand years, which is coming up beginning this Wednesday, which is the season of Lent. Here's what Lent is. Lent is not meant to be scary. Lent is very simply a period of time leading up to Holy Week where Christians have traditionally abstained from some desire that is good said no to a desire, why? It becomes a retraining opportunity for our hearts to say, I will not be satisfied by the creation, but I want to be satisfied in the creator. I'm not going to say any more about that. Tune in this Wednesday to our midweek update, and you'll hear a little bit more about that. Love for the world looks like discontentment. If only I had that car. Whatever you would fill in the blank, if only I had, then I'd be happy. Whatever you would fill in that blank with, power at work or at school, pleasure. Again, we could go on and on. Money and possessions is a real revealer of where our heart is and our affection. John Newton, who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, not that version we just sang, but the original version, um, 
he wrote about it and he used this phrase. He talked about his inordinate desire and attachment to the things of this present world. Inordinate desire and attachment to the things of this world. And he talked specifically about money. And he talked about how this can go, this can be revealed in two ways. Our love for money can be revealed in, in two distinctly opposite ways. One is kind of frivolous spending. If I gain more stuff, if I just had that, 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 and that, I'd be happy. But it also can reveal itself in hoarding. Not getting more, but just constantly afraid that I'm not going to have enough. You realize that love of money, love of the world in regards to our money, has nothing to do with the dollar amount you may have in your savings or checking account. But it has everything to do with your attitude and your approach to whatever amount you have. This is not a possessions and money are bad sermon. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, you could even, 1 Timothy 6 says, command those who are rich in this present world. He doesn't say to give all their stuff away and don't have anything because possessions are evil. But he says, warn them not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, because it's uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides for us everything for our enjoyment. You know what's scary to me? Is even religious activity can be done in a worldly way. Ooh, that's insidious. Ooh, you can show off how biblically literate you are and how smart you are and how godly you are, not as a means to glorify and love the Father, but as a means of actually appealing to your own needs. Wow. Ultimately, love for the world believes the lie of the enemy that says you are Lord over your life. It's about you. Spend as much time as possible trying to make yourself happy. And by the way, that is a surefire way of living a miserable life and taking people down with you. It is a lie from hell. And this message comes all around us because this world system is a current that is pulling not towards the Lord, not encouraging godliness, not encouraging righteousness and God's kingdom priorities, but pulls us in the exact opposite direction. Everything we watch, everything we hear, it is not leaning towards God. It is pulling us from Him. And yet, you and I have been invited to know the one and to love and center our lives around the one who was before all time. The one who loved you first. The one who gave himself for you. Psalm 27 says, the one thing I ask, one thing I seek is to see your beauty. That's our prayer today. John is honestly inviting us to examine ourselves. A couple keys where he might help you. Look at where you spend your money. Take an honest assessment at that. How do you think about your possessions? Listen to how you speak. Are you constantly talking about just kind of the frivolous things of today, or is there any substance to your conversations? The, heart speak, the, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Your emotions can also identify this. What's the stuff that makes you really, really angry? What's the stuff that makes you over the moon excited? What is really frustrating to you? All of those maybe moments to show where your heart is at. I heard one person describe your emotions are like the check engine light of your heart. But I have to also ask the question, why is this so hard? Why is this so hard for us? Why is it so enticing to take all the shiny stuff in this world and try to put all our weight on it 
even though we know it cannot bear up under it intellectually. We know this. In our minds, we just know that, that money won't actually make me happy, but just maybe a little bit more will. Pleasure really isn't ultimate goal, but uh, I don't like being uncomfortable. Like, wh- what is it that's so hard about this? And I think it's because faith is just hard. If faith is easy to you, I don't know how you do it. We are such creatures that are bound by this temporal world, by time and space, that, that we're, we're just distracted by it. It's like we have corporate humanity ADD. Squirrel, something else shiny that'll take my attention. We're like fish that just keep coming back to the same baited hook. Just doesn't make any sense. I've often thought that whenever, like the four times in my life I've gone fishing, I go, why are they eating this? It's going to kill them. And yet you and I do the same thing. We're stupid fish swimming around eating baited hooks. Why is that? I think part of it is because I can't see God in the exact same way I see that really big house over there that would make me a little more happy. I can't see God in the same way that that stack of money, that, that it's, I mean, we don't talk stacks anymore. It's just a number on a screen, right? But that number is really big. And if I had that, or that vacation, or fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, but she's really attractive, he's really fit. If I just had those things, I see them, and I see what it gets people in life, and it looks better. I can't see, and so I keep thinking to myself, God, if only I could hear you. I'm so dependent on things I can hear with my ears, and that I can see with my eyes, and that I can touch with my hands. And does that sound anything like 1 John 1? One, because here's the amazing thing of the gospel, that Jesus knows that you and I are so bound by this temporary world that he is willing to enter into it and become like one of us. That he looks out and says, you need to hear it with your ears? Listen, you need to see it with your eyes, you need to touch it with your hands? The word became flesh and walked among us. He came to our level to speak our language because he knows that you and I are just going to continue to look for life in physical things because we are so bound by this world. We, don't, we, we have a hard time thinking outside of it, and Jesus comes and enters into it, which is why in a few minutes, when you take the physical cup and you take the physical bread and you eat them, Jesus gives you those as a gift, as a reminder that says that the most real being in the entire universe, the most real thing, the most real source of life came and became physical for you to have life so that you and I can stop chasing all the new shiny objects like that carrot dangling in front of a horse that they're never going to catch either. But instead, take Eat, drink. I'm real, Jesus says. And I've come to give you real life that you will not find outside of this. And as children of God, here's the amazing thing. Jesus comes, he becomes like us, and he lives with his priorities perfectly in line. Taking the desires that are innate in him as human, the desires of the things he sees and the resources he needs to live and he fully submits them to the Father for his entire life. 
If you want something fun, go look at, uh, let me see if I can find the passage, Matthew 4, and read the temptations of Jesus through these lenses. They almost match up perfectly. Not surprising. God knows what he's doing when he's writing his word. They match up perfectly. He came, submitted all of his desires, did not love the world but loved the Father, and yet bore in himself on the cross the emptiness that comes from us chasing temporary, fleeting things in this world. He bears that on himself. Why? So that he can offer you himself as the real life so that he can give you his spirit that will convict you of places and moments where you go, I'm loving this more than I'm loving you, aren't I, God? I'm choosing, to use Romans language, I'm choosing the creation over the creator. I've got my priorities out of line so that he can give you that, convict you of that, show you that, and then lead you in a better way towards himself. Here's what this does for us then, because remember, this is not a physical things, desires, or bad sermon. But actually, when we love the Father, when He, the giver of life, is our life, when He is our heaven, and we don't try to make heaven on earth out of our stuff, when He is our heaven, we are actually freed up to enjoy the gifts of God without trying to put so much weight on them that we're going to crush them. We're actually freed to enjoy them in the way that they were intended to be enjoyed. I want to close with something that C.S. Lewis said in, in a letter to Malcolm on prayer. I honestly don't know who Malcolm is, but it's, he got a letter from C.S. Lewis. Here's what he says. He says, I have tried to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. Adoration, he goes on to say, is very different than gratitude. Gratitude simply says, thank you, God. That's good and right. Adoration takes this sample of the goodness that we've received and says, if this little sample that I got is that amazing, not just thank you, but how good are you? How good of a God are you? If this is a, a bite-sized sample of who you are, how amazing must you be? And he says, when you do that, One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. Because that's exactly what the pleasures and desires of this earth and our possessions are intended to do. They are intended to be a means by which we allow our minds to run back up the gift to the giver. And we meditate on his goodness. And we love him when we find in ourselves a growing desire to be with this God as children of God, everything that we experience on this earth that is temporary is meant to fix our eyes on the eternal giver who is before all time, who forgave our sins, who brought us into a relationship with himself, and who has given us victory over the one who rules over this world. You are free from your love in Christ. You are free from having to be bound by the fleeting, temporary things of this world. You are free to enjoy them to the glory of God. May we be people who don't allow our pleasure to stop simply with the gifts, but to run back the sunbeam to the sun. And may we submit our entire lives in every way that we enjoy those gifts in obedience to the Father. Let me pray for us. Father, you search us and you know us. So keep searching us. 
Show us. Test us. Know our hearts and show, convict us of our sin. Show us where the offensive way is in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Show us places where we are loving the world, where we're putting too much weight on on something that's temporary that will collapse under us. Purify us and refine us so that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and as a result, we will better love those around us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.